A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with us on the program today. We're going to be talking with the Heritage Foundation's Amy Swearer about uh, some of the um, calls for gun control on Capitol Hill and why uh, Amy says that's not the way to go when we're trying to improve public safety. Far from it, as a matter of fact. Uh, before we get to that, however, in today's turbulent times, you need to gather tools that allow you to defend your family and the way of life that you know and love. My friends over at Pickett's Mill Armory are the folks that can help you with that. Pickett's Mill Armory is a veteran-owned and operated rifle company in Georgia, and they're committed to providing you rifles with premium quality without the premium price tag. Their mission is to build you a rifle that gives you every advantage possible with 100% American-made components. Whether you need a tactical rifle or a hunting rifle, they have your back. And you don't have to settle for just as good anymore because they've solved that problem for you. You no longer have to buy a rifle and then buy parts to swap out. When you purchase your rifle from pmarmory.com, they come out of the box with high-quality barrels, superior triggers, and other options that you can choose. So when you think of Pickett's Mill Armory, think of a small-batch coffee or maybe, you know, a a small-batch whiskey. They're not going to compromise their standards to turn out thousands of rifles every month like a lot of other companies. They're going to take their time. They're going to do what's right. Head over to pmarmory.com to find the tools you need to defend your family right now. That's pmarmory.com. And now let's get to our conversation with Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, take a look and a listen. Amy, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. I really appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me again. Absolutely. So obviously, uh, you know, the debate on Capitol Hill right now is once again erupted into uh, we need to ban these guns. Uh, we don't need to ban these guns. We need more unnamed gun control. We need to do something. And if you don't want to do something about guns, well, then you must not care about, you know, the shooting at Covenant School. You must not care about student safety. Um, As somebody who has testified before Congress on these issues, I have to ask, first of all, just, you know, what is your sense of the the, the current atmosphere in Congress um, when it comes to gun control issues? Well, I certainly think there is a a common narrative, sort of a default that happens every single time uh, that you see an event like this. And it's the default into a, a very specific talking points um, it kind of like you just mentioned, right? We need to do something. That something is always a very particular set of somethings that almost never would have actually addressed any of the factors related in, in the event or in the mass shooting or in the high profile incident, never would have addressed those, solved those, or even touched on uh, most of the underlying factors of gun violence generally. But those are the things that you either want to do them or you hate children and want them to die. Uh, And and there's never, or at least very rarely, any room for a nuanced discussion of what actually went wrong and how we can actually intervene uh, and do not just something, but do something effective and helpful that also doesn't infringe on the rights of peaceable Americans uh, who who had nothing at all to do with this and who are not a danger to themselves or others. And I I think that's unfortunate that this is now the default. Um, it's it's every bit as predictable as when you you see a, a mass shooting incident, for example, you can sort of predict the details of of what was the lead up to that incident. You can now predict sort of the the political outcry and and sort of the the talking points that happen after. And it's 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 really unfortunate. 
It is unfortunate because you're right. I think at the end of the day, it gets in the way of doing the substantive things that that we can do to protect kids. Um, one of the things that has uh, come to light, Governor Bill Lee, I guess, uh, said over the weekend that he wants to expand the number of school resource officers. He wants a, a school resource officer in every public school. He wants to provide grant money to private schools to hire armed security. Um the law in Tennessee right now regarding armed school staff is kind of weird. Um, uh, uh, it's not really generally available for public school districts. Uh, private schools may have that option. And there there was a report that came out on Friday. One of the 911 callers at uh, Covenant School uh, told the dispatcher that she believed that there may have been somebody on campus who was who was armed, that, uh, that generally there is one, maybe more. She said she didn't know uh, individuals who are who are generally carrying. Um, Nashville police have not confirmed that, uh, so we don't know if there was an armed presence on campus. Obviously, this was a, a big uh, uh, a topic of argument uh, between Jamal Bowman and, and uh, Thomas Massey um, in Congress last week with Thomas Massey saying, look, there's never been an incident uh, in a place that has armed school staff. That that may be proven wrong now, Amy. But again, we it's, it's a little early to know, first of all, whether or not there was an armed staffer on campus and B what role that individual played. I mean, when you look at the timeline of the events here, 14 minutes elapsed between the time that the first 911 call came in and the police shot and killed the attacker. The six lives that were lost are six too many. At the same time, given the amount of time that that individual was in that school, you might expect that the casualty number would have been even higher, which makes me wonder what type of security precautions were in place and did actually work uh, to save lives that day. Well, so you're right. There's there's a lot we still don't know, and, and that's unclear. But let's look at what we do know. So we know, for example, that that shooter did not have this, this uh, elementary school as the primary target. The primary target was actually supposed to be a different school that the shooter took a look at and said, there's too much security, and actually defaulted to this school because of security measures at another school that presumptively included armed security at that school. Um, so e let's say that there there was an armed teacher at the school, and we don't know that. Um, it could very well be that this staff member was either mistaken or that any armed, uh, potentially armed staff member simply wasn't there that day, was not on site. There, there could be a, a dozen different realities. Um, we, we do know that the hardened security measures uh, at this, this Nashville Elementary School almost certainly saved lives. So you mentioned there were only six fatalities did despite having essentially 14 minutes against unarmed uh, unarmed primary school children uh, a lot of that had to do with you know you go back to Uvalde and people getting mad about you know us wanting to talk about locked doors the fact that even this glass door was locked uh, added about 40 seconds between when that shooter first started shooting and when they were actually able to get inside the school and during that time, it is very clear that that even that 40 seconds enabled the school to go into their emergency threat lockdown protocols, um, which is why the shooter essentially spends the next 14 minutes wandering hallways looking for the few victims who are not locked down and to whom that shooter cannot uh, get into uh, so that the shooter couldn't get into the, the uh, it looks like most of the, the classrooms or anywhere where the children actually were. We know that those things saved lives. Now, regardless of whether or not there may have been an armed staff member, again, we don't know that. But I think it's also possible, and, and, and people haven't thought this one through, if there was an armed staff member, one of the things we have always said uh, in, in terms of arming staff members is they need to know their role. Is it primarily defensive? 
That is, are, are they sitting there waiting, you know, God forbid the shooter breaches and comes into that classroom and they are acting defensively primarily, or are they supposed to go out and hunt down that active shooter? Now, in a scenario like this, where you would anticipate that it doesn't take police 14 minutes, it takes them maybe five minutes, right? One of the pitfalls of, of having sort of an active, um, you know, go out and hunt this person down is that you don't want to be the good guy with a gun when police show up looking for a bad guy with a gun, right? That can lead to very unfortunate circumstances. And so this is something that I, I think, you know, schools are, are trying to to think through and plan through. And I think it's possible that even if there there was an armed staffer, um, that their role was primarily defensive in nature, again, not anticipating that police are going to take 14 minutes, but that they're going to take, you know, three, four, five minutes and get there and that it's primarily defensive in nature and you let the police or in the case of, let's say you have an armed SRO on campus, that's their job as the professional. Um, and I, I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case, again, if the facts do come to light, that there was an armed staff member on campus. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so the Homeland Security Research uh, or Homeland Security Institute to Dr. James Eric Dietz at uh, Purdue University has done some research into this and actually found that the fastest way to stop uh, an active shooter on, on a school campus is to have that school resource officer present who can who can you know try to engage that attacker while you've got armed staff members who, as you say, are sheltered in place behind those locked doors. In case that door gets breached, they can then provide an immediate response to protect those students under their care. Um, and it may be that that you know was the uh, the, the idea uh, if there was an armed school presence uh, or an armed staff presence there at Covenant School. Again, it's it's too early to know. We're we're kind of engaging in, in speculation here. But you know, the other thing I think that's important here is communication, right? Between and it may be easier when you're talking about public school districts and their county sheriff. Uh, they can say, listen, here are the staff members who you know have, have undergone the training and vetting. Um, we know that they're carrying. It might be a little bit harder to have those lines of communication with private schools and, and local law enforcement. But again, as we go forward and we're looking at ways to improve our response, this is something too that you're right. We absolutely need to be taking a look at those those lines of communication and the responsibilities uh, for those armed staff members on a particular campus. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think you're right that if this is a scenario where there is uh, a, a uniformed officer immediately on that scene, whose job it is to, to take care of that, right, that helps facilitate some of that communication, right? Because now you have a, a uniformed, uh, an SRO is a, an employee of you know, the, the, the local police department or, or sheriff's office, almost always that that's how that works. Right. And so you sort of have that, that, that media, right. Uh, uh, that line of communication. Um, but again, at the end of the day, uh, you, you have a reality where yes, that, that locked door certainly delayed, uh, certainly delayed the shooter's ability to, to harm as many people as possible. But I think that next step, right. Is not just delaying getting into the door, but having that armed response, immediately so that when that shooter does breach that door, God forbid, right, that they're immediately engaged with armed resistance and not with, you know, trying to figure out where the children are, right? How do I get through this next locked door? Um, and we've seen things like this in, for example, uh, Santa Fe High School just a couple weeks after Parkland. Um, so that shooter with just a pump action shotgun, not a, not a scary looking assault weapon, right, but a pump action shotgun and a revolver was on pace to kill far more people than we saw at Parkland. The reason he could not 
was that in under four minutes, unlike the 17 minutes that SROs spent outside of Parkland not doing their jobs, under four minutes, the two SROs on that campus found that shooter, engaged him. And yes, it took about 40 more minutes to bring him into custody. But during that time, he was he was engaged in a shootout. He was not focused on killing innocent victims. And that is when the death stopped. Um, so we know that it's important. Um, and we know that that time frame, right, cutting that down from 14 minutes to either immediately with an armed SRO um, or, or even just down to five minutes, right? Because once the, the police were on scene, they were incredible. But we've got to cut down that time to that, to actually getting that armed response there on scene engaged with that shooter. So what do you say to folks, Amy, you say, listen, that's ridiculous. Even, you know what, Amy, you're right. We should do that. But we need to do more. We need to ban these evil assault weapons uh, or I guess in some cases, maybe now uh, pistol caliber carbines. Uh, We need to ban, you know, large capacity magazines that we can't address this problem. We can't solve this problem unless we take on the guns. Well, I'd say, especially when we're talking about mass public shootings in this capacity, the type of gun realistically doesn't matter. And, and I think too few people understand that, right? When you give someone who is bent on violence, any modern firearm, I don't care whether it's a pump action shotgun and a revolver and a lever action rifle instead of a pistol caliber carbine you know, and, and a Glock, it doesn't matter what it is. When you give them 14 minutes against unarmed children in this case, it's going to be devastating. Um, and I, I think anybody who understands the reality of, of modern weapons, right, un- understands this. Let's say you limit them to, to 10 round magazines. It doesn't take that long to change out a magazine. And we're talking minutes, not seconds against someone who's shooting back. So yeah, if you have an armed SRO on that campus, maybe them having to, to change a magazine in a shootout matters. But that only matters if there's an armed conflict, right? Um, so, so even if that's what you want, and that's your goal. It's not actually facilitating saving lives in these types of mass shootings. Um, you know, and, and that said, you look at something like there's been a lot made of, of the shooter's pistol caliber carbine, right? And, and how this is now suddenly an assault weapon. Um, that, that's absurd, right? Th- these are guns that are perfect, absolutely perfect for something like home defense, um, because you're, you're getting uh, all of the benefits of a rifle, having those three points of contact in a very small, compact, you know, light firearm that isn't shooting, you know, your quote, high powered rifle round. It's shooting the same uh, bullet as your handgun, right? It's just enabling you in a tighter, compact space to have more control over that. It's, it is absolutely something that people own for home defense to turn around and to say that this is now an assault weapon, I think sort of belies the, 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 the problem, right? And it's that assault weapon has never had a functional definition. It's never been about whether the gun is is functionally more lethal um, or, you know, actually more deadly in a mass shooting context or not in a mass shooting context. It, it's always been about, is this a scary looking gun that we can convince people is something that ought to be banned because they don't know better? And that has always been the problem. And I think it's even more apparent now when, again, you, you, have, a, you have a Caltech sub 2000 being deemed a, quote, assault weapon, um, with people online who, who absolutely know better, saying that no respectable person would ever own these for a respectable legal reason. Um, and, and it's just silly. Well, it, it, it is silly, but I think it's, again, I, I think it's part of a, um, 
uh, an attempt on the part of the gun control lobby to demonize gun owners themselves, right? It's not just that, uh, oh, this no, this gun is uh, uh, irresponsible to own, but it's no one needs this, right? No reputable person. If you own one of these guns, all of a sudden now you're disreputable, right? And we're talking again about, uh, not in the case of a pistol caliber carbines, but uh, uh, in case of AR-15s, the most commonly sold rifle in the country today. Um, you know, this whole idea that, by the way, guns that, are, as you well know, Amy, are not used in a lot of crime. Um, and that seems to be the argument, right? Because uh, if a particular firearm was used in a heinous crime, well, now we got to ban that gun. Well, if that's the logic that we're going to use, then why wouldn't we ban handguns? Because that's the most common firearm used in crime. And you know, the Supreme Court has already said a handgun ban is off the table. A handgun ban is unconstitutional. Um, this is one of the things I got to say is really frustrating that we keep having this sort of circular argument where gun control advocates say, well, no, we do need to ban these guns that are in common use, even though it would be unconstitutional. I uh, don't want to change the Constitution. Maybe we just need to change the Supreme Court. But they never really wrestle with the practical impact of what do you do when you tell 100 million Americans that the guns that they own for self-defense are is how a criminal offense uh, for them to uh, continue to possess it. it. This, to me, just seems like we're going down a dead-end road, and it's actually taken us further away from the types of things that you and I talked about that actually can make a substantive difference in the safety of students and staff. Well, and and, and here's the reality, right? So the, these these law enforcement officers that we are praising as heroes, and they, they absolutely are, if you watch those videos, they once they got on scene, everything they did was exactly, exactly what you would expect of professional law enforcement. What firearms were they using? They were using the exact type of gun that we are being told time and time again is only useful in combat, um, you know, in a war zone for indiscriminate killing. Well, no, very clearly not. So you have peace officers who are are, are undertaking to, to stop a civilian threat in suburban America, not in a war zone, right? Not not in combat, but in suburban America, a threat against civilians. And they are showing up with what? That AR-15 rifle and in fact, it seems to be actually the same sort of um, uh, 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 short barrel, you know, SBR that would actually be under the, the National Firearms Act, right? Not even the ones that we can easily get. And they're showing up to the civilian threat with that. Why? Because it is useful. It is so useful for them that we routinely exempt them from these, quote, assault weapons bans, including in their personal off-duty capacity. Now, let me ask you something. If it is so useful for them, who are showing up after I've already called them to the same threat that I initially faced, well, how much more useful is it for me, who is facing that threat and sitting there waiting for them for 14 minutes to show up with the same gun that I'm being told I can't have because it's too dangerous for me? It yep. makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but unfortunately, you're right. Like, th this is the sort of circular, uh, broken logic that we keep seeing and that we keep having to combat because the, it, it's just not clicking with people that this never made any sense in the first place. Well, I, I'm glad that we have your voice out there, um, you know, reiterating this argument uh, as often as you can, because I do think that some people are slowly waking up to this. Um, you know, we saw in New Mexico this year, uh, Governor Michelle Luan Grisham's call for a, a gun ban kind of fell on deaf ears. Democrats uh, in the legislature did not pursue it. That may be the case in Colorado. It's still a little too early to tell. But I, I think that there are even some folks who ideally would love to get rid of every gun in this country um, who are starting to wake up to the fact that no matter what they might desire, 
Uh, from a policy perspective, this is not the right way to go. There, there are better things, there are better options out there. And so I think that, honestly, I think that your advocacy is making an impact. I, I thank you for using your voice, uh, not only in defense of our rights, but again, in, in pursuit of uh, tactics and strategies that honestly can make a difference. So, Amy, thank you for all you do. Thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's always great to be with you. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate Amy joining us on the program very much. I'm looking forward to having her back again uh, here very soon. Now, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a case out of Chicago where police say a man allegedly hijacked a driver on the city's north side while he was on electronic monitoring. Oh, yeah, and on probation for a previous armed robbery charge. That's right. Uh, according to CWB Chicago, Julius Willis ordered held without bail during a bond hearing. It's a uh, change, they say, from the $500 that he paid to get out of jail after prosecutors charged him with driving a stolen car back on February the 6th. During that hearing, the uh, judge ordered Willis to stay in his home from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. and to wear a court-operated ankle monitor to keep track of his whereabouts. Well, last Monday, Willis picked up a new case for allegedly carjacking a man who was uh, waiting for a ride, or actually waiting for his uh, passenger, I guess. Surveillance video shows Willis walking across the street, opening the driver's door while pointing a gun at him. He allegedly pressed the gun against the driver's body, then grabbed his coat, demanded his cash. Victim handed over the money and got out of the car. Willis then uh, allegedly pushed him out of the way and drove off in the car. Discovered about four hours later, he was in the front passenger seat when the vehicle was spotted by Illinois State Police uh, driving at about 100 miles an hour. Troopers eventually stopped the car, removed the driver. Willis then slid behind the wheel and tried to drive away again. Uh, officers had recognized Willis from the surveillance video of the carjacking and uh, thankfully were able to take him in custody. Now, according to police, Willis was adjudicated delinquent last year for unlawful use of a weapon. He was adjudicated delinquent in 2020 for unlawful use of a credit card and in 2019 for theft. So he's racked up quite the juvenile history, uh, was given a sentence of one and a half years for the armed robbery of the firearm. Uh, however, it's unclear how much, if any time, he actually served on that charge because he was uh, on juvenile probation for that case again just last year is when he was convicted. Public defenders, as he goes to church often, helps his pastor feed the homeless. Uh, he is studying brick masonry at Malcolm X College, according to his attorney. All good things, um, unfortunately, could very well be undone by the alleged criminal activity that Willis has engaged in. And uh, given the fact that these new charges come as he's on probation, it would certainly appear that the uh, consequences the last time around for Mr. Willis uh, not enough to get him to completely change his ways. Anyway, today's armed citizen story from Houston, Texas. You know, last week we told you about this um, grandmother who operates a food truck who was the victim of an armed robbery. She shot and killed her attacker. Um, the same week in Houston, and I completely missed this story until uh, over the weekend. In fact, I think it was the day before that uh, defensive gun use of the food truck, a veteran in a wheelchair uh, ended up shooting a man who tried to rob him downtown Houston. Yeah. And again, uh, police say this individual was acting in self-defense, a, a military veteran uh, in a wheelchair, shot another man uh, last Monday night. It was around 9 p.m. Police dispatch for a shooting in progress in the 1900 block of Main Street. When authorities arrived, according to uh, WPDE, they found the man in a wheelchair 
and a suspect with multiple gunshot wounds. Uh, Lieutenant uh, J.P. Horlack of the Houston Police Department says the man in the wheelchair told him he was waiting for a ride home when the suspect ran up and tried to take his bag, which prompted him to pull out a gun and fire multiple shots at the suspect who attempted to run off before collapsing, uh, quote, several hundred yards away. Uh, first responders were able to take the man to the hospital. It is expected that uh, he will survive. Um, it's unknown whether the veteran suffered any injuries in the incident, but again, police say that he was acting in self-defense. We'll try to bring you uh, an update on that story. Uh, if I can find one, you know, even in the local media, when they cover the initial reporting of a defensive gun use, oftentimes the uh, follow ups are few and far between. But we'll see what we can figure out for you. Uh, finally, today in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. A uh, good Samaritan who saved a 100 year old woman with a Heimlich maneuver. And yeah, this really was a case of being in the right place at the right time uh, and willing and able to do the right thing, because this was just sort of a random encounter Ryan Roberts is a, a ceramics teacher in Honolulu, and he says that uh, he was driving home last Tuesday evening. And he had his sons in his car when he noticed something that was wrong. He said, what's this lady doing in the middle of the road? She's going to get hurt. And as we passed her in the side mirror, I was watching her, and I was like, well, the lady is hurt. Uh, apparently, police say the woman was choking on a cough drop while she was riding in a car with her daughter. When she started choking, the daughter pulled over on the highway. woman gets out. And that's when Roberts jumped in. He said, I got her out of the car. She was in the door jam and I got my arms kind of around her and I just started giving the Heimlich to her. A um, hundred years old. Other good Samaritans apparently stopped to help, including other healthcare workers before first responders arrived. But according to those emergency crews, it was the decision that Roberts made to stop his car and get out and see what was going on with the woman that saved her life. Uh, Dr. Jim Ireland, director of the Honolulu Emergency Services Department, says you never, never know when you're going to need that skill. Four to six minutes, you start getting brain damage and the heart will stop. And what's really amazing here is that Ryan Roberts was just trained a couple of weeks ago in CPR and first aid. And he was already able to put that training to use. He said, I hope she's okay. He said, it was really cool for my boys to see. It was neat. It was a proud dad moment. Uh, I think I just saved that lady. I think he did. And I hope that she's around for many more years to come. So in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Ryan Roberts, we thank you for your very good deed. And I would be remiss if I did not uh, finish today's program by talking about the passing of Cameron Gray, a longtime producer of Cam and Company, all around good guy, uh, amazing husband, good friend, just a kind and generous soul who passed away far too early uh, over the weekend. You may have seen on uh, Cameron's Twitter account, uh, his wife, Loretta, posting um, what happened and sharing some of her memories of Cameron and others have been sharing their memories as well. I, I could, this would be a 24 hour program. If I started talking about all the memories I have and have shared with Cameron Gray over the years, but uh, I can tell you that my heart is broken today, not only for Loretta, but for all of Cameron's friends who loved him and knew him and who will miss him forevermore. So please keep uh, Loretta in your thoughts and your prayers. And I have one more request for you. Um, I heard last Friday, uh, Joe Wurzelbacher, you might remember Joe, Joe the plumber. Joe has recently been diagnosed with stage three pancreatic cancer. Uh, there is a give, send, go that has been set up to help defray some of Joe's medical expenses. I can tell you, having um, struggled with my wife for seven years as she's fought lung cancer, the cost of care uh, can be overwhelming. And 
when you are struggling just to make it through the day and you're dealing with the side effects of the medicine and you're just hoping that it works and you're hoping that you can continue in your fight, um, worrying about losing your home, worrying about losing your cars, worrying about where your next meal is going to come from is, is not, uh, that's never a fun experience. It is even less fun when you are again, struggling with a, a deadly disease. So if you can, I would ask you to uh, uh, look up that Give, Send, Go for Joe the Plumber and uh, do what you can to help the family out in their time of need right now. Thank you very much. All right. That is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I really do appreciate you being with us on the program today, uh, including uh, Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation. Now, I will be taking a couple of days off, but I will be back on Friday. Normally, you know, we do the show Monday through Thursday, but I'll be with you on Friday this week with another edition of Cam and Company. Uh, Tom Knighton and the crew over at Bearing Arms is going to be holding down the fort on the website for a few days, but uh, I'm looking forward to being back in the uh, very short term. And again, I thank you again for being a part of today's show. If you like what you see, uh, whether here, I would also encourage you to uh, go to BearingArms.com and become a VIP member. All you have to do, go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe, use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As our way of saying, thanks for showing your support. We're going to give you exclusive content, news stories, analysis you won't find anywhere else because your support does matter and it really does make a difference. So thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. I'm glad you're with us. We'll see you here soon. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.